Be Wealthy and Smart, episode 189. into a world of wealth and financial freedom without budgets, boredom, or bosses on Be Wealthy and Smart. And now, here's your host, Linda P. Jones. Welcome to Be Wealthy and Smart. I'm Linda P. Jones, America's Wealth Mentor, empowering women and men worldwide to financial freedom. On today's show, we're going to talk about, is it better to invest in real estate for capital gains or cash flow? I've mentioned Jason Hartman's Creating Wealth podcast and how there are over 700 podcasts about real estate investing for you to listen to. But now we're going to talk to Jason himself about his investing experience and whether it's better to invest in real estate for capital gains or for cash flow. What's his experience and how did he learn about it? Here we go. I'm excited to have Jason Hartman back on our show. Welcome back, Jason. Thank you, Linda. I'm glad to be here. Oh, this is great. We had such a good interview with you last time, and I had tremendous feedback. I wanted to have you back. And this time I wanted to talk about a way that you discovered to reduce risk dramatically in real estate. What can you tell us about that? Well, Linda, about many, many years into my career, when I started to become a non-local real estate investor, a nationwide real estate investor, I made an incredible, well, what I think is an incredible discovery, and many many of my listeners to my podcast and uh, clients of mine think it's a pretty good discovery, too. And I dubbed it the Hartman Risk Evaluator, and it's a way to really reduce downside risk when investing. And uh, uh, maybe I can just tell your listeners the story as to how it came about um, uh, real quickly and and, and kind of just go into it. So what happened is I was always investing in the very expensive Southern California real estate market in Orange County, California. And uh, properties in that market never really made sense at all because they're too expensive. Oh, I was just there. Yeah, I was there. Balboa Island, Newport, uh, just incredible pricing. I mean, 1,500 a square foot. Ridiculous. Oh, it's insane. It's totally insane. And, you know, very nice area, very nice place uh, to live, but not a good place to invest. So I called myself an investor there. Uh, Looking back, I think I was wrong. I was really just a speculator. And uh, as I got a little older, I became more conservative. And, you know, it's kind of hard to earn your money and you don't want to lose it. So uh, uh, I I discovered this risk evaluator um, in this way. I was buying one of my first out-of-state properties. I was in Southern California, but I was starting to invest nationwide. And these properties were so inexpensive around the country compared to Orange County that I just couldn't believe it. And uh, I had a uh, insurance agent in Irvine, California, Her name was Jennifer. And I remember I was buying two properties at the same time. One was a home in Orange County uh, that I was going to live in. And it was $815,000. And it was a little 1,800 square foot or 
did I say 1800? Yeah, mm-hmm. 1800 square foot, brand new house in Orange County, California. And, you know, it was a nice house. It had an ocean view off in the distance, city lights view, and kind of a big yard for the area. Not that those yards are very big. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was a brand new home. And that was $815,000. And it, right about the same time, I was buying my first property that was as a nationwide investor. And this was $159,000. Wow. And uh, I was getting insurance from the same insurance broker on both properties. And I remember her calling me one day, and Jennifer told me, hey, Jason, on on this property you bought uh, out of state, we're going to give you insurance of $135,000 on that property. And I thought, Wow, that's interesting. They don't insure the land. They only insure the structure or the improvement or the house or apartment building sitting on the land because the house could burn down. The land never goes anywhere. And so uh, the house is, is the part that's insured. And so that effectively, Linda, is an appraisal on the value of the house, the cost to replace the house if it burnt down. And by the way, that property was also brand new. And, and so I got my tax bill on the property I was moving into, the $815,000 property. And uh, they also divide the land to improvement ratio, what I call the LTI ratio, on your tax bill. So when people buy a property, they usually consider it to be one component when it's really two components. One component is the value of the land, and the other value is the value of the improvement, the house sitting on the land. Mm-hmm. And you really need to segment these two and look at them as two distinctly different uh, factors and, and two distinctly different valuations. And so uh, when I got the tax bill on the property I was living in, it said that the land value was $660,000 and the improvement value was $159,000. I'm rounding just a little bit for ease of speed here. Uh, but but basically, that was the equation, okay? So about $159,000 improvement value for the 1,800-square-foot house and $660,000 in land value. So obviously, a high land value market. Now, what what's interesting is when you think about the things that influence construction and whether a builder will build or not and whether the supply of housing will continue to increase or not you have to look at it from the builder or developer's perspective they their their equation is basically the cost to build and the cost of the land plus their profit margin and if they can't buy the land and build the house and make a profit they're going to stop building and they're not going to increase the supply of housing. And so uh, then you look at what influences the cost of the improvement component of that that equation and you look at things like uh, environmentalism. And uh, if you're in a very uh, restrictive area, which is very hard to build in, uh, the cost of improved land becomes more expensive because uh, it becomes more valuable through scarcity. But that's very hard to evaluate. It's very speculative and it fluctuates quite a bit. So I don't really like that as a as a safety net for my investment. Uh, and and then you look at the cost of construction, okay, and what influences 
the cost of construction. Well, uh, development, uh, natural disasters, um, uh, massive economic growth around the world in places like China and India and the U.S. too. And so when there's more demand for construction materials and you think about the ingredients of a house simply being uh, basic things, you know, lumber, concrete, copper wire, petroleum products, glass, steel, energy, and labor. Those are the basic ingredients of a house, right? Mm -hmm. And those ingredients are things that are used around the world. They're not indexed to any one currency, and they have universal need, universal value. Every human being needs those things because they need shelter, okay? Mm Mm-hmm. So those things are pretty reliable, and they're commodities. They're commodities traded globally, not attached to any one currency. So what I like to call my philosophy is I call it packaged commodities investing or assembled commodities investing. See, I'm really an investor in commodities more than real estate because What I like to invest in is very low-cost real estate, meaning the land value. And as a ratio, when when I talk about this LTI ratio or land-to-improvement ratio, that's a term I coined, uh, kind of a takeoff on what most investors know, the LTV ratio or the loan-to-value ratio. Uh, When I talk about the LTI ratio, land-to-improvement ratio, I want that ratio to be very high in improvement value, the the house sitting on the land, and very low in land value. Because the land value is where the risk is. So continuing my little story here, I bought the house for $815,000 to live in. I bought the other house for $159,000. Jennifer calls. She says, we're going to give you $135,000 in insurance. And by deduction, Linda, I know that the land is worth Mm $24,000. And I thought, wow, I'm so unused to that being from Southern California. (laughs) Uh, You know, I'm used to land being worth $606,000. So it was rather startling for me to really realize that and have it sink in. And so um, I, I, I bought both houses. I moved into the one, rented the other out. And about a year later, I noticed prices in my neighborhood going up pretty dramatically. This was during the crazy boom times when nothing made any sense uh, prior to the Great Recession and the bust. And so I moved in in about 2005, and the values were skyrocketing. A year later, I called my bank and thought, I want to engage in the practice I call equity stripping, where I pull my equity out and I buy more real estate with the equity. Now, I, I called I called the bank up. They sent out an appraiser. His name was Eric. And interestingly, Eric, who I tell this story about in all my seminars, actually came to my seminar about a year later. So it's kind of funny. <laughs> and I'm mm-hmm. telling this story. And he said, Mr. Hartman, congratulations. Your house is now worth $1.3 million. And I thought, wow, do I love real estate? I bought it for 815000 And in just one short year, I made $485,000 in gain. Wow. Now, did I know that was going to happen? Of course not. I'm no, I'm no expert. I don't have a crystal ball. I got lucky. That's about it. Okay, I thought the house was pretty good. I refinanced the house and pulled a bunch of cash out. And this is really a 50% gain. I mean, that's 50%. Uh, 50% 
on your eight hundred thousand, well, but better if well, you, oh, yeah, you bought yeah, it leveraged, so you yeah, made yeah. more. Actually, oh, when you look yeah. at how much you actually just put down, you probably yeah. made a multiple of that. But fifty percent gain in your housing price in oh, one yeah, year, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, yep. Looking at it that way, you're absolutely right. It's it's actually more than fifty yes. percent in, mm-hmm. in that way, mm-hmm. um, and uh, and with leverage, and I was leveraged, mm-hmm. um, I made a huge gain. Mm-hmm. Okay. So the question now for your listeners, okay, listeners, think about this. When the house goes from 815000 to $1.3 million, which of the two components increased in value? Was it the improvement, in other words, the house sitting on the land, or was it the land? I which would say it was the land. land. Yeah, and you are right. The lion's share was the land, although the improvement probably did go up a little bit, but not much, okay? So let's just round off for simplicity purposes and make an estimate here. Let's estimate that the improvement that was 159 when I bought it is now worth 200 That's probably a little generous, but let's just go with it. And now the land is worth $1.1 million, okay? So... I had a second loan on that property, I believe. I can't exactly remember. But anyway, for some reason, a year later, I wanted to refi again. Maybe the rates went down. I I don't recall the exact reason. And um, I call the same bank up, and they send the same appraiser, Eric. He comes back, okay? (laughs) So it's funny, you know, you very rarely get the same appraiser the second time around. So it's now, I'm now two years into the deal. Eric comes back again, and he says, hey, I have bad news for you this year. Your house went down in value. It's now worth $1,235,000. So, okay, big deal. You know, I lost $65,000, but I'm still up $420,000. I still pretty much feeling pretty good about this, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So the question now is if we... Started at eight hundred and fifteen thousand, went to one point three million, and now we're back down to one million two thirty-five. What went down? The land or the improvement? Hmm. Yeah. Well, I do think that there is a a factor each year that the value of the house does go down because of uh, depreciation and things like that. Technically, you are absolutely right, because what's better, a new house or an old house? Most people are going to say a new house, right? Mm -hmm. And and, and you're right, you know, wear and tear, depreciation, sure. The only thing that would change that is is really when the commodities market is soaring and there's a massive demand for construction materials, uh, like we talked about, that could uh, skew that equation, but but conceptually you're right. You know, every there is depreciation. Okay? I mean, when it's just a small number like that, it might just be from the house depre- depreciating, but it has to be the land. I mean, the bigger right. part of it has to be the land. Yeah, yeah, the bigger part of it is the land because the house, if it was worth two hundred thousand at the peak, it's not worth now one hundred and thirty-five thousand no. for that little eighteen hundred foot house, right? No, right. So. The the thing we can learn from this, I mean, what's the takeaway? Your listeners might be thinking, well, I don't know, this is kind of an interesting thought experiment, but what do I do? What do I do with this knowledge, right? What do I do with Jason's big discovery? <laughs> so what you do with my big discovery is the same thing I did. You shy away from areas with high land value, 
that, by the way, Linda, when we when I was on your show last time, uh, just a little over a month ago, we talked about the three types of markets, the, the cyclical, linear, and hybrid markets. And if your listeners remember when we talked about that, you can tell that every high-value cyclical market on planet Earth, there's this is true in foreign countries. It's true in it's true in in Hong Kong. It's true in Singapore. It's true in uh, Paris and London, as it is in New York and Los Angeles and Seattle. Okay, or South Florida. All these are high value cyclical markets, right? Mm-hmm. They're all high land value markets, and they're very risky. Because land values fluctuate dramatically, but improvement values, although they do fluctuate, it's not as dramatic. Mm -hmm. Because a piece of wood will always be worth something. A, A copper wire that's in your house and glass and steel that it took to build your house will always have some intrinsic value. Now, arguably, land will too. But not when it's really high-priced land. That becomes a very uh, amorphous concept to try and value land like that. And it fluctuates dramatically. So the takeaway is, if you want to be a conservative investor and reduce your risk when investing, the way you use the Hartman Risk Evaluator is to simply invest in in markets with good LTI or land to improvement ratios, meaning land is a very small component. Because think about it. Back to my example, my out of state property, the land value by deduction was twenty four thousand dollars. The improvement value was one thirty five, total of one fifty nine. The uh, Orange County property, the one I was living in, eight hundred and fifteen thousand uh, at the start, but then one point three million at the peak. Right, the land value there was one point one million dollars. Mm-hmm. So if that goes down by half, I'm going to lose five hundred and fifty thousand dollars. If the other little rental property that who really cares if it goes down in value because it has good cash flow anyway, right? Mm-hmm. It, it it rents for about 1% of the value. I'm only going to lose $12,000. That I can handle. <laughs> mm-hmm. I can't handle losing $550,000. That would really sting pretty bad. And, um, and so that is the takeaway. Low land value markets are much, much safer markets. Mm-hmm. Not to mention... Do they not only have much softer swings in value, because these are the linear markets, they also have much better cash flow, much better income as well. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Well, we, as I mentioned, we were just in Newport, and the comment that my friend made was he told his friends, you can't sell and get out of this market because you'll never be able to afford to get back in which was mm-hmm. really interesting because uh, a market... Yeah. Of- that, that, by the way, is not true. 
Okay, okay good. Well, I'd love I, to hear I, your opinion I lived, about that. I lived through three cycles in high-priced real estate markets. One when I was a kid, and I was not in real estate, uh, but I, I kind of knew I was going there. Mm-hmm. And um, Was that uh, in the 70s, would you say? No, it, it wasn't that long ago. No. But I, I went through a um, uh, down market as a kid in Los Angeles, and I remember when my mom was buying houses, you know, I kind of grew up around someone who was interested in real estate investing. Mm-hmm. And, um, uh, you know, I, I just saw what happened. And then I, when I was in real estate again, I went through two cycles. And uh, it always, always the people that got hurt were in the high land value markets because they were always investing based on the greater fool theory no matter what I pay, Mm -hmm. someone else will come along and pay more, some greater fool. And that is just a very risky way to invest. Now, granted, people certainly have made money in those markets. There's no question about that. But they were lucky. uh, And I'd rather be lucky than good any day of the week. Okay, I totally get it. Uh, But, um, you know, it's, you can't count on it. It's just not, it's not reliable. It's not predictable. Mm Mm-hmm. I've never met anyone in in all my years in the business who can reliably predict appreciation and depreciation. And be careful believing that someone can. And I'll tell you, here's the trap, okay? There was this guy in Orange County, California. His name is Gary Watts. Poor Gary Watts. I should probably have him on the show. And, you know, for years, Gary would come around and he'd speak to all the realtors and go to the board of realtors meeting and he'd always speak and everybody would just fill his sessions. And he was always a super popular speaker. And he'd come around to the big real estate offices and do a speech. You know, I owned a real estate office. He came around a couple times and spoke to our group of agents. And in every major city, there's like one of these guys, okay, or or gals that that does this that's sort of the economist for the local economist right and gary had this great track record he was always right until he was wrong (laughs) (laughs) and then he was wrong and fell on his sword and i you know i remember in 2005 at the end of the year he would always make his rounds at the end of the year he was saying oh the market's gonna boom forever here it's gonna go up i don't know what he said exactly but i'm just gonna pluck out a number somewhere around 20% next year. And it crashed. It went the opposite way. Okay. David Lira, the chief economist for the National Association of Realtors, you know, he he wrote books during the boom about real estate, how it's just going to go on forever. And now nobody can find him. I tried to get him on my show and, you know, he's, you can't find the guy. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, you know, everybody's right until they're wrong. And if you ask me, just invest for cash flow. Invest in low land value markets where they have good LTI, land to improvement ratios, and properties must make sense the day you buy them. Mm-hmm. Makes sense to me. Excellent, Jason. Well, this was very helpful. Where can people get more information from you? Uh, my website is jasonhartman.com. That's just my name, J-A-S-O-N-H-A-R-T-M-A-N.com. And I'm also on Twitter at Jason Hartman, R-O-I, like return on investment. <laughs> Fantastic. Thank you for coming, Jason. We've got to have you back again sometime. Happy investing to you and your listeners. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Be Wealthy and Smart with Linda P. Jones. Share the wealth and tell your family and friends about the show. 
check out our website, blog, and social media for more riches at www.bewealthyandsmart.com.